Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Your voice is valuable. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Dana James. Dana is the founder of Black Iowa News, a website and newsletter to chronicle the lives of Black Iowans in the era of COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement. She is a lifelong Iowan and award-winning writer. Dana wants you to know three things. We are still in a pandemic, Breonna Taylor still needs justice, and Black Lives Matter. She worked for seven years as a reporter at the Des Moines Register, where she covered education and minority affairs. Her work has appeared in several publications. We discuss Dana's interest in news and her path to journalism, as well as the reasons why she created Black Iowa News. It was an honor having Dana on the podcast. I thank her for sharing her time, her voice, and her insights. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Dana, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time. If you don't mind, for me and our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for having me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an honor. You've had some great guests on the show. My name is Dana James, and I'm founder of Black Iowa News which is a website and a weekly email newsletter. Growing up, my parents really kind of nurtured my love of reading and writing and being creative. And that ultimately led me to get a journalism degree. And it led me to become a reporter at the Register, where I was there for seven years covering a wide variety of beats. And then I went on to write for some magazines and websites Um, The idea for Black Iowa News began last May, kind of coming out of the era of the coronavirus and the police brutality that we saw. And so I had um, noticed a national newsletter. It was geared towards Blacks, and um, it was talking about the coronavirus. And it really lacked the Iowa news. We had a lot of news, obviously, going on um, here with things that happened at the state level. And so I pitched a story to the um, journalist that ran that newsletter. And um, while I waited for her to get back to me, I kind of looked, studied her, the format, the platform she was using. And by that Monday, she hadn't gotten back to me. And I decided, you know, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, start my own newsletter, start my own platform. And it really all came out of trying to stay safe. You know, at first I was trying to just keep my family safe, keep my friends safe, but then it just kind of expanded as the number of coronavirus cases exploded and the outbreaks became the norm in meatpacking and nursing homes and things like that. And then as Governor Kim Reynolds pushed reopening businesses, and resisted mask mandates and resisted stay-at-home orders, I really felt compelled to really sound the alarm for Blacks in Iowa um, because as the coronavirus really picked up steam in those early, you know, early March, 
April and May, you know, Blacks began falling like dominoes across the country. And there were a disproportionate number of cases and deaths. You know, I read story after story about, you know, people, Black people particularly, dying at home because they were refused entrance into a hospital or they were refused coronavirus testing. And so I started to really dig into those issues with the goal of helping Black Iowans stay safe because I was not seeing that issue really delved into in terms of the media here. And, you know, as we come forward in time and we get to when George Floyd, uh, the Minneapolis man that was killed by police there when they knelt on his neck for more than eight minutes and you get toward the civil arrest, you know, I really was thinking as Black people, you know, if we're going to get justice for Breonna Taylor, we're going to get justice for George Floyd and so many of the other victims of brutality, police brutality, we have to survive the coronavirus first. So the first story that I wrote for Black Iowa News um, was rush to open businesses could endanger Blacks. And I interviewed Abraham Funches, who is a leader of human rights up in the Waterloo area. And he talked about how, you know, the close proximity to the meatpacking plant there and the impact that it was having on residents as the coronavirus spread. So really with Black Iowa News, the stories began really with me trying to answer a question that could help keep people safe and give them the information that they needed about what was really happening on the ground here. So really my goal with it was to really chronicle that collision between coronavirus and racism, like the legacy of uh, mistrust that Blacks have with the medical profession. Um, Black Iowa News is not really, I'm not trying to be everything to every person. I can't cover every story. I'm one person, you know, and this has really grown kind of organically. Um, you know, since George Floyd, you know, I've written about how we're not in the same pandemic. You had Michelle Obama on her podcast talking about how she had low-grade depression, watching all of the brutality uh, happening, you know, with um, police and Black people across the country. And so I started to really write about, you know, healthcare, discrimination, you know, the different outbreaks that happen, and, you know, the emergence of some of the, um, there's a super PAC here now that's working, No Justice, No Peace, that's focused on Black issues. And I started to, you know, watch what was happening on social media. You had some Blacks being very skeptical of getting a flu shot ahead of the, you know, any COVID vaccine. And then you had, you know, lots of people remarking on, you know, the kind of disastrous presidential debate that we just had. So Black Iowa News really allows me to really do everything that I already love to do because I get lost in researching and writing. And often my husband has to tell me, hey, do you know you've been you know, sitting in that same spot for six hours and not moving, you know, glued to that Chromebook. So um, I really enjoy, you know, all aspects of learning and putting together something that's creative. And I really try to see things from the reader's eyes and answer that initial question that they may have. Thank you so much. I, and I do want to dig in 
uh, a little bit later, I do want to dig in more specifically to kind of uh, uh, the details too behind Black Iowa News and you know some of the big topics that you've talked about, right? That we're still in a pandemic, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, and, and justice things, especially related to things that we've seen more recently with uh, Breonna Taylor. Uh, George Floyd, and unfortunately, no no shortage of events, right? Uh, but want to want to dig into those. But I do want to back up, as you said, your so your parents cultivated an interest uh, for you in uh, reading, writing, and journalism. Can you walk me through a little bit how uh, your path to uh, studying journalism and becoming a journalist? Oh, definitely. So growing up, um, my house always had books and magazines and newspapers and you know, my parents just really, I love to read. And so, you know, they bought every book that I wanted. And, you know, I grew up in a time where we, as a family, we ate dinner together and we watched the news together. And my parents, you know, they were kind of gifted orators. They liked to talk too. And so we always talked through like what was happening with current events on the news. And so that, I think without really realizing it, that really started me on the path, I think, to become a writer, to become a reporter um, because of that early love. I can remember like late in the 70s when the, that's back when, you know, salespeople would still come to your home and knock on your door. And I can remember the day that a salesperson came and he was selling the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, right? And so my father, you know, brought him into the house and my parents were sitting there and they were, you know, talking with this salesperson. My sister and I were in the dining room and we were, I was just kind of like, yes, buy them, buy them. I really, really want, you know, these, these books, you know, as I listened to the salesperson and sure enough, you know, my dad, he purchased them and, you know, the books, the encyclopedias went in the dining room and I spent a lot of time um, doing my homework in the dining room with these encyclopedias around me. And, you know, it really, you know, having a home that had, you know, a focus on reading and writing and analyzing current events and being able to think about things critically just really spurred my love of the written word and, you know, down to the level of even the punctuation, you know, I'm very particular about those things. And so as I grew up, you know, I wrote poetry I wrote songs. I even wrote raps back in the day. And then by the time, yes, definitely. I'm not sure that you want me to rap, but yeah, yeah, I did write them. But um, by the time I got to high school, I had um, all coming up, really, I had really great teachers, right? And so I get to high school and I have, you know, Ruth Ann Gaines, who is, you know, a national teacher Hall of Famer, who's a state representative now. And she was encouraging me. I can remember a conversation that we had in class. And she says to me, you know, she asked the class, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, I gave some really silly answer that I had overheard, like, in my parents have a conversation about. And I think I said I wanted to be something like a supervisor. I didn't say of what, I just said I wanted to be a supervisor. And she said, you know, I see you being an, an ambassador. And so she really, that always stuck in my mind. She really, you know, wanted me to, to think higher. And so, you know, like a lot of other people, um, right out of high school, I went to college. But after about a year, you know, I was distracted and wanted to make my own money. So, you know, I stopped going. 
But my dad always told me, he's like, hey, you know, if you want to take some classes, even though you're working now, I'll pay for your classes and I'll buy your books. I thought that was a good deal, you know, good deal. <laughs> so I always took, right, you know, and it was like a good subliminal message that he had, like keep going. And so I um, took pre-law classes. I took art classes. I just kind of always was taking a class on the side. And I had all these credits just racking up, so to speak. But um, a real big turning point came when my dad died of a heart attack unexpectedly when he was 56 years old. And after the funeral, my sister and I, we had this conversation and we wondered, you know, had he done everything that he wanted to do with his life? You know, we knew obviously dying that young, he he didn't. And so we kind of applied that to our life. And in that conversation, we we, we thought about well, what will we do differently with our lives, knowing that our father's life ended super early? And at that moment, that's where this idea was born to go to college, get a degree in journalism. And I decided in that conversation after my father died that that would kind of be my gift to him in a way. And so within a few months, I had um, returned to college as a non-traditional student, went to Grandview University, you know, there I had great experiences, great professors. I was managing editor of the school newspaper, you know, went to lots of journalism conferences. And ultimately that led to me being, getting an internship at the Des Moines Register and writing there for the seven years. Thank you. Uh, one of the things that you had mentioned to uh, the when you were you were talking about Black Iowa News, and you had mentioned like answering an important question, uh, did that did that notion of an interesting or an important question did that emerge through you know, your journalism studies, or is that that something that you've kind of uh, honed in on a little bit later? Because I'm al I'm always interested when with just the notion of important questions and how might we answer those. So I loved hearing that, but I was just curious on what was your epiphany to to focus on answering important questions yes and it's really kind of a weird um a weird path so with black iowa news um i feel like it really grew organically because i was noticing those problems but also during the pandemic like many other people i was working at home remotely and i was working full-time for an insurance company and then you get to the point where George Floyd was killed and the CEO of the company that I was working for in an email designed to foster solidarity, he wrote, um, all people matter. And that really triggered me. I was really angry and, um, you know, because people say all lives matter, all people matter when they don't want to say that black lives matter, you know, they, they, you know, it's a cop out. So I decided right then that I wasn't sure if I could really work for them because I knew that there was going to be backlash to his email. And I really didn't want to stay and be a part of a company and have these kind of agonizing conversations when I really felt like they should have known better. So that was the catalyst for me right there. That was May for me to really just focus in on, on Black Iowa News. 
And, you know, like I said, I, I love social media, love and hate, I guess, social media. Mm-hmm. I'm on there all the time. And I'm really, you know, paying attention to things that people were saying, but also paying attention to what they weren't saying. And so as I, you know, approached creating stories, it really, you know, a lot of it would come from conversations that my sister, she's a news junkie too. And, you know, we, in those early days of the coronavirus, she worked at home remotely too. We would watch, you know, the coronavirus task force meeting, like we were prepping for a Zoom call at the CDC, like we're on it, I'm taking notes kind of, we're, you know, watching everything. And so a lot of the story ideas, a lot of, even what I decided on in terms of like the graphics that go with the story, they really kind of came out of me wanting to answer questions that I saw people having. Thank you. I want to dig in on that, um, the all lives matter and, and not, not challenging that itself, but I'm interested from your perspective, why, why do you think it is so hard for people to say black lives matter? Because I really feel like in some ways, you know, we know that with black lives matter, that two on the end of it, that T O O is silent, but we know that it's there. We know that that is what it really means, but you've got some people that really want to just think about it literally. And it's very hard for them. Um, for a variety of reasons. It could be, you know, the implicit bias. It could be explicit bias. It could be a lot of reasons why they feel uncomfortable saying it. But that's a real problem. Um, I really feel like in this country that we can't all unilaterally agree that Black Lives Matter and that there has to be this counter to it. And so, like I said, All Lives Matter, um, yeah, we know on on its face they do, but they're they're really we have to agree that Black Lives Matter full stop. And so yep. um, that that triggered me when um, he said that. And you know, like I said, this is 2020. We don't right. w- we should be better than this. Absolutely, you know. And thank you for sharing that. I know uh, for me here in Iowa City, our our mayor Bruce Teague, uh, who I think is just a great guy. I know uh, one of the things that uh, Iowa City was doing uh, was uh, besides the the demonstrations and protests, uh, there were also basically listening stations, right? And the mayor would like get on Zoom and remember him a couple times. uh, An analogy that he was using is that, um, you know, Yeah, it, if we're in a neighborhood, uh, we, we might say that everybody's home matters. But if, if Joe's house is on fire, Joe's house matters. That's where we're focusing. And uh, just all of the kind of turmoil that uh, is, is hitting black communities and has been hitting black communities. I, I thought I liked his, his analogy that, you know, you're, you're going to go help Joe and his house rather than just sit back and say, well, I guess all homes matter. So, um I, I appreciate and I for me I just I am still struggling with and I appreciate your your reasons too is why it is so hard for people to say black lives matter. So uh, right because you know yeah definitely in some ways they haven't mattered and that's why we are you know where we are in terms of all of these horrible disparities these horrible inequities 
that are really coming to bear in with that intersection of the coronavirus and racism. You hear people talk about how we are in a pandemic, wrapped in a pandemic, basted in another pandemic, <laughs> simmering in another pandemic. And it's really true. I mean, in this, what, six months of the, you know, pandemic, you you really see the intersection of all these problems. You know, everything is really being highlighted, unemployment, um, educational disparities in terms of like the digital divide. So it's it's really serious problems happening. Yeah, I I feel like uh, in 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 many like taking a systems approach in many systems when stress is put on the system is when you can really see where the problems are. And so I mean, all of this like you said, all of these different stressors kind of converging at the same time that uh, demonstrate inequality uh and, and it's not it's not like that's new right but uh c- you know coming to a head and and even your your lens on the pandemic that um kind of that there are there are different outcomes for different different types of people and so i appreciate you uh also the effort that you're taking to get uh the right information out there uh to help um i was kind of curious too with uh uh with the experience, you know, thinking about Black Iowa news and news that Black Iowans might need, and this might, uh, and, and I apologize if this is really ham-fisted question because sometimes I do get nervous, right, that I don't want to be kind of a, a white male mansplaining. Uh, so this is really, I'm trying, <laughs> but it, you know, Sometimes we hear about two Americas, but like, is it is it safe to say there are at least two Iowas? Oh, most definitely, there there truly is. And so, in the story that I wrote, we're not in the same pandemic. It really looked at that because what I was seeing in the mainstream news is that you know, Iowans were planning you know backyard parties and gathering in these large gatherings. They were up voting at Okaboji. They were going to adventure land. And, you know, most Black people I knew at that time, you know, were still doing everything they could because of these additional stressors that we have in our lives, doing everything else they could to really stay safe. And it was really just this kind of tale of two worlds. And so, you know, a lot of that for me, you know, there's this saying also, when white folks catch a cold, black folks catch pneumonia. And I was really unfamiliar with that saying before the pandemic, but wow, how fitting it really is. And so, you know, here in Iowa, you know, here in Des Moines, there would be times that my pastime during the pandemic would be to just drive around the city, right? And so I'm driving around the the city because that's the way I can stay safe. I'm in my own car, you Mm -hmm. know, but I'm looking at looking at the city, right? And so you can see some people working in the buildings downtown. You could see people, you know, the parking lot malls, the parking lots at the malls were full. People were shopping at Kohl's. People were, you know, at Supercuts getting haircuts. And I am still, you know, as a as a Black woman, you know, watching these horrible statistics about how we're dying at two point four times the rate of others. And in some age brackets, like 45 to 54, six times 
the uh, amount of white. And I'm, you know, still still in that, you know, fear, kind of fear-based thinking. You know, I'm, I'm watching other people go on with their lives. And a lot of it had to do with um, that kind of top-down um, adv- advice, uh, top-down decision-making that was happening. Um, one thing that I want to point out, too, and, you know, even – you know, my forever first lady, Michelle Obama, <laughs> even Michelle Obama in the Michelle Obama podcast was talking about how she had low grade um, depression, you know, watching everything that was happening, dealing with the coronavirus, dealing with police brutality. And I that resonated with me, you know, that despite income levels, despite educational levels, despite all these other things, um, coronavirus really separated us. It really discriminated. And so, you know, I could see that playing out in my own city. I could see it playing out in in the statistics. And I could see it playing out on social media that for a lot of people, hey, they were dining out fresco downtown at restaurants while others of us had to really, you know, shelter in place yeah. because of just how the virus was spreading and how differently it was spreading. Well, and, and you know, looking, looking at the pandemic uh, and looking at things prior to the pandemic, I know kind of a, a callous thing, is, is, but at times it's, it's not a problem until it's a white person problem, right? That like crack, crack it was the people that were suffering were bad people, but now, now a meth problem that is, is more traditionally white and rural, then, we're, then, then it's a more empathetic lens on, on the addict rather than, than making bad choices, right? It's, it's things that are going on. And, and so I wonder too, even like with things with pandemics, you know, is it, is it not real, so to speak, until, uh, you know, like the majority suffers? Uh, but, you know, it, it, the, the, I guess the sad uh, thing for me is, is the feeling that um, maybe we don't have to work on it when it's, it's disproportionately hurting non-majority people, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And a lot of the, really the birth of Black Island News, you know, came because you had, you know, Governor Kim Reynolds, you had President Donald Trump uh, downplaying the virus, downplaying the impact, you know, spreading disinformation, um, not, not, doing what they could do to help Americans stay safe and particularly black Americans. And so a lot of what I wrote and a lot of the stories that I want to write, you know, they've dealt, it's dealt with those things. It's trying to give people information to stay safe. It's trying to, you know, help people understand, Hey, we, you know, the medical profession, we have issues with distrust of the medical profession. You know, for example, because of Tuskegee, because of Henrietta Lacks, because of some of these very real things that have happened in the past. It's, a, you know, acknowledging that, but also giving people information from doctors about ways that they could stay safe. And I wasn't always seeing that represented in other mainstream media stories. As a matter of fact, in a lot of, you know, television news and even some printed news, you don't see the statistics for how many black people have coronavirus in Des Moines. I mean, in Iowa, you don't see the statistics for how many black people have died in Iowa. And so you just hear this big blanket figure like today, 
90,000 people have um, been affected with coronavirus in Iowa, and more than 1,300, nearly 1,400 people have died. Nobody ever says how many Black people, you know, have it and have died. And so I really have dug through um, to get those figures because it's important for us to know. Because out east, when it was really like decimating, you know, the New York area, you know, it was obvious because Black people were on the cover of the New York Times. Black people are on the cover of some of the other, you know, media entities out there. So it was very obvious that it was um, affecting Black people dis disproportionately. And even as you come through to the Midwest, I can remember the first Black person that died in, in St. Louis. Um, her last name was Diamond, Jasmine Diamond. And it just struck me like, wow, like the first person that died of, you know, coronavirus died of COVID-19 is, is a Black woman. And so I was really like sitting up taking notice of this, but I wasn't really sure that other people were. And so other Black people particularly. And so, like I said, Black Iowa News is really born to bring some of these issues to light. I mean, I knew when I started writing, when I started developing it, it was never just going to be about the pandemic. It wasn't just going to be, a, you know, about COVID-19 because being Black in Iowa, being Black in this world, there's so many other issues that we need to talk about and that don't get talked about all the time. I will say this, though, since George Floyd, you know, was killed on May 25th, um, you've seen a lot more stories about Black people, about issues affecting Black people than I can ever remember. I mean, going back, you know, decades, um, there hasn't been this kind of concentrated effort. And I hope it's not just a trend. I hope it's not just a fad, um, but it's super important. And I love reading, you know, reading these stories because they're needed. Um, each of these different media companies has a different um, focus. And so like Black Iowa News, I can't chase every story and it's not even for me to chase every story. But what it is for me to do is to dig into the stories that I really think are important for other people here in the state um, to read and important topics for them to understand. Thanks. And I, I want to back a little bit too, as you had said, kind of the, the disproportionate uh, impact on black communities and uh, something that my, is, my awareness has kind of been raised recently. A few months ago, I was in a discussion and, and lecture conversation at the University of Iowa in the College of Medicine, and we were digging into the social determinants of health. And I think one of the biggest surprising things for me is if you were to break down like what impacts people's health and healthy outcomes, it's almost the smallest thing is actually the disease and the treatment. It is related to so many social elements about our, our, the world around us, right? Our, you know, do we, you know, do we live in areas that are like, you know, kind of the urban deserts, right? Is it, can people get access to, to good food? Do they have a support system around them? Um, but I was just really shocked uh, at, at those. And it was a, you know, it, like I said, it raised my awareness. And so some of what I'm hearing to you talk about are also the social determinants that are putting uh, a black community at uh, a higher risk, 
that, um, and as you mentioned, like even even uh, distrust of medical system because of things that have happened. So, just really appreciate you too getting getting more of those stories out there to help people, as you said, answer some important questions. If you, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Um, question and then a question for you kind of re related to this is um, besides uh, the you know sharing the information getting these stories out there um, what else would you like to see is 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 favorable or positive outcomes from more people knowing about black iowa news definitely so one is um like the artwork that i use for black iowa news comes from black artists and so helping other black artists get their work out there you know so that they have um things for their portfolio um also a lot of the people that i talk to in the stories a lot of the experts that i'm talking to are people if they're not black they're people of color and so i think really also get, giving a voice to black professionals and making sure that their um, expertise is shared amongst the community. And so I think those things are really important. And I plan to, you know, as I expand and grow, I plan to really continue with that. Great. Um, one of the things to, and you, you and I had talked about this uh, a little bit in a previous conversation that we had, but from, from my perspective and this, this, and, Feel free not to answer or tell me that this is it's not your job to educate me. Right? Uh, friends, so some friends of mine, uh, Andre and, and Jason. Jason lives in the Twin Cities. Uh, Andre in Iowa City. A couple of years ago, they started Humanize My Hoodie, uh, and and this was more of an extent you know, from uh, uh, you know a hoodie being seen as something that right is is usually associated with. Uh, black culture, black males, and like, you know, is that reason why, you know, people are shut? How do we humanize the people beyond the hoodie? And, and I love the work that they're doing. And they've, uh, they started an ally uh, workshop, like how to be an ally. And so my question for you uh, might be how, how might uh, non-black Iowans or not, you know, that, that are, aren't people of color, how might they be better allies? Well, one of the ways is to, you know, like read some of the stories that I have on Black Iowa News. Um, I have a lot of supporters of Black Iowa News who aren't Black and who follow uh, Black Iowa News on Twitter or follow us on Facebook and interact with our pages. So it's very much not something that's just um, reaching Black people, it's reaching everyone. And I think that that's part of it is, you know, your education, gosh, so many times in social media comments, I can remember, you know, um, people asking a question and, you know, it's, a, it's on you to try to educate them. And that's mm -hmm. just, that's not right. The thing is, you do have to educate yourself. We've got, I mean, it's 2020, we've got access to so many different types of media, so many different types of people who are, who are influencers, who are doing things, like the information is there, <clears throat> but your education, it, it is really upon you to, to read um, uh, diverse types of media. 
Um, I mean, you'd be amazed if you looked in my email basket and saw how many different newsletters I get from media companies around the world, really. Um, and it's each, each newspaper, each website, each enterprise like mine brings a different perspective. And that's the beautiful thing about it. And the more that you're exposed to that, and then also like you've seen in the Black Lives Matter rallies, you know, it's not just black people marching, it's right. lots of different types of people and they're, you know, they're, it's, it's such a beautiful thing when you do see the um, protesters. And I mean, we already know statistically 93% of the Black Lives Matter protests in this country have been peaceful and it's been lots of different types of people coming together. And that coming together will help us going forward. That proximity that we have to each other, because now we're not just in our, our little bubble working and with the same people who look like us. We're not we're out there and we're mingling and we're trying to understand. And the more that we can do that, the better this world will be and the better, the more likely it is that we will overcome these very real divisive um, forces that are out there trying to drive a wedge between us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Uh, so I, I lived in, in Minneapolis for uh, 15 years and lived lived fairly close to uh, where George Floyd was murdered. And uh, then some of the, you know, the, the destruction to the neighborhoods. And I remember my first reaction was, that's not people from the neighborhood doing that. And then there was, you know, more and more evidence is coming out of outside agitators coming in. And, and I guess personally for me, I get frustrated with uh, almost protest and rioting being conflated that they're the same thing. And is that, that they're not is that voices need to be heard. And I think another thing that makes me frustrated is, you know, for, for, for the folks not suffering, there's never a good form of protest. Right. <laughs> and, uh, Absolutely. and, and, and protest is supposed to make people uncomfortable to kind of shake them out of and raise, raise their consciousness and awareness to these things. And so it's, um, to me, it's just been really frustrating that that freedom of speech and protesting uh, is is now getting tied to, uh, you know, looting or rioting is is uh, I guess just personally disturbing uh, for me. So I don't know if that commentary is is worthwhile or not, but it's just I've, I've even even the lenses that that uh, and framing that is used is not being very explicit about trying to uh, uh, you know separate those things right is is where where agitators came in especially from the outside to stir up uh discontent and also it seems like it sullies the uh the the name and reputation in my my only experience lately with uh with some of the the protests and some of the you know the black lives matter was a lot was being organized by the iowa freedom riders here in iowa city right but i know the the events that I went to, and I, I, I brought my children, right? I, it wasn't like I was feeling like th I'm putting them at risk, right? So these, these were peaceful, um, and there, granted, there was, there was spray painting, right? And then I, and, and some, some vandalism, and that was one of the things too. It's like if you're more concerned about a building than a person, we're, <laughs> this is going to be a harder conversation than we thought. 
Most definitely. I mean, each time that a black person has been, you know, killed due to police brutality, um, I, you know, I feel those things very deeply. Like I can, I can't begin to tell you how, how much I cried over George Floyd and how much I cried over Breonna Taylor. People I never met, people that I would never meet, but each time something like that happens, it it affects us all very deeply. And we know that had there been no protest, America has a short attention span and would have went back to its regularly scheduled program if mm-hmm. people weren't protesting. And, you know, the other thing in the protest that we, we have to mention, especially when you talk about Iowa City, is the the actions of the police were, you know, antagonistic toward uh, protesters. I believe I saw a video where there there was uh, the interaction, I think it was from the um, body cam footage from an officer, and you saw the protesters there come up to, you know, the police and say, hey, you know, we want, we just want to come through. We're not trying to start anything. And then shortly after that, you see them get, you know, tear gas and, mm-hmm. and you see essentially what looked to be like bombs bursting in air. And so, you know, in some of these cities, you know, the, the police, the highly militarized, you know, police forces that we have, have antagonized. I mean, even here in Des Moines, um, one of the early, um, protest where um, essentially uh, a police SUV was vandalized and, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters were standing on top of it. And it got a lot of play in the media and a lot of people were super outraged. And I'm like, where's your outrage when Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck for more mm-hmm. than eight minutes? Where's your, where's your outrage that Breonna Taylor could be in her own home um, and a battering ram comes through and, you know, she shot multiple times and more than 200 days later, her killers have not been brought to justice where, you know, where's your outrage for, for those things. And so, I mean, like we said, these issues, the issues of police brutality, the issues of defunding the police, um, trying to make headway on some of these issues, it's, it's paramount that we work on this. And that's why it's paramount really for the protest to continue. Like every, every day that I read another story where someone's protesting, like I cheer, you know, I'm happy because we have to keep this up because where we, where we are at is intolerable. It's intolerable that black children in this country, that they're growing up and this is normalized. It's it's unacceptable. And so it's unacceptable for us to have a white supremacist as our president for him to say and do all of these things that are really in opposition to black lives and to roll us back. And Mm -hmm. so we have to fight this with everything that we have. And black lives, you know, black Iowa news in a way is a part of that protest. It's a part of that shining the light on the issues that maybe aren't getting attention. Like you you talk about, you know, conflation and how people want to act like they don't understand what the the term defund the police means. 
when we know you would understand what defund Planned Parenthood, we know you understood what that meant, and we know you understood what defund the schools means. I was just going to say, so defunding it, education seemed to be pretty easy to right, understand. Right, you understand what that means, and you're, you're up in arms about it. And so one of the stories that I wrote on Black Iowa News was about defunding the police, and I covered an expert panel, um, people from the sentencing project, and a professor, you know, out in LA, and they really dug deep into what defunding the police means, what it would look like. And if you really, if you take away how people have tried to make that term, you know, so controversial, and you just really look at some of the proposals, they seem very reasonable. Yeah, and I think sometimes too, from my perspective, is even, you know, if to to get the the good outcomes that we're looking for, to be able to frame even empathetically, is that um, the 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 job and the role of an individual police officer is more complex than it's ever been, and the the tools that they're given, right? It's like kind of law of the hammer. If you're always if you always have a, a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and so you have increased. Uh, body armor. You have increased uh, ammunition, right? You said militarized. So then it looks like everything is supposed to be a confrontation rather than de-escalation. And and yet, like I see where where police officers too are called so many times for so many different reasons that that maybe do the cops even need to be called? So all of these different things that are going on them and you hear you hear these things and defund the police that are like yes, how do we how do we get more? Uh, how can we treat root cause things and before they grow into, uh, you know, also people just, for lack of a better term, making up stories, getting people in trouble, right? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm just sorry, now I'm going off and th- just thinking about the, the bird watching situation in, in uh, Central Park. I think that was right before COVID. Um, do right. Where uh, a black uh, bird watcher, and that's just part of his regular thing, is being out in Central Park watching birds, and uh, a woman with a dog off the leash, uh, a white woman who was violating the laws. Right? <laughs> it's if they only followed the laws, right? That we we hear that too. Until until it's a white person, then it's like a, a valid excuse for them to do what they're doing. But she she threatened to call the police and mention that a black man was doing it because she knew what type of result that would would provoke um so that's also like why why do you need to call the police on a a a discussion you're having between a bird watcher and a a, somebody with their dog off a leash it's just i think it's become absurd on how often people call the cops and it it seems like a maybe a a crutch for actually just not like not having a conversation with somebody absolutely but what it also does it just shows you how very precarious it is to be a black person in this country. I'm a law abiding citizen, you know, never been to jail, never been arrested, never had, you know, anything like that. But, you know, I, I have this goal of not having any interaction with the police at all, because we know that one bad interaction can end your life. And Mm -hmm. we know that, you know, it's happened time and time again. I mean, when you look at George Floyd, you know, that situation got sparked off because of a $20 uh, alleged counterfeit bill, you know, essentially. Did the police really need to be called for that? I'm going to say no, you know. So it's things like that. It's some of these policies that need to be changed. I mean, you know, I can remember instance when 
you know, I was working at the register and I was driving to work and I had a red license plate cover, which was a popular thing back then. And um, I got pulled over by the police. And so, you know, this police officer comes up to me and he says, um, hey, you know, do you know why I'm pulling you over? And he's like, you can't have this license plate cover. And I said, well, you know, do you mind if I reach into my go compartment and show you something? And he humored me. And, you know, I reached in there. Mind you, my hand is shaking, mm-hmm. you know, and that tells you a lot about how I was feeling. I reached into my glove compartment and I pull out a copy of uh, the Iowa Code section that dealt with these license plate covers. And I said, you know, the Iowa Code says right here that this I can have this. And right away he was like, you know what, um, in my 10 years on the force, I've never seen you know, no one's ever given me a copy of the Iowa Code before. Ma'am, you're absolutely right. Here, you have this back. You have a nice day. And he went on. But but what's telling is that I already had to pre-prep to be pulled over by the police as a black woman in this in this town. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we that's something that we grow up with. That's something that we know. On one hand, you, you have society telling you, hey, police are your friends. But on the very real... In, in practice, we know that that's not always so. You've got, you know, a long list of black people, um, Jacob Blake, you know, uh, getting shot in the back seven times recently mm-hmm. in Kenosha. You've got the, you know, Sandra Bland, you know, the conversation she had with the officer, you know, being pulled over for little minor things. You have um, recently um, Roderick Walker in Clayton County, Georgia, who was, um, he was a passenger in a lift. And because he didn't have his ID, he gets dragged out of, you know, the car and beat down on the pavement. You have Atiana uh, Jefferson, who was in her own home, you know, and you got police outside who allegedly didn't announce themselves, shot into, you know, her home. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And it's just more evidence of why it's hard to... um have these have any interaction with police like to me that's the goal is not to have any interaction and it's sad because they're public servants they work for us we pay their salaries with our taxes and we should be able to get the same treatment but statistically we're not getting that yeah and 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 a good portion yeah oh sorry I, i didn't mean to cut you off oh no i was just saying in a good portion of people in this country don't see it as a problem and we'll argue in these comment sections you know it's always like well why didn't you comply why didn't you um you were too aggressive why didn't you um stay still it's always the onus is always on the black person as to not get brutalized and, and that, if i if that, i mi- oh sorry <laughs> sorry tina <laughs> go, go ahead. ahead no i was just gonna say and I, I, I love the point you're making there. And for me, it's why has the onus always been on somebody that has never gone through de-escalation training? Right? The, the, the police Absolutely. officers go through de-escalation training, not, not as a regular citizen. So how, you, know, you, want, you want me to do all of these things. And, and even, even as a, a white guy, I remember, like, say, if you're pulled over by the cops, like, you know, make sure your light's on in your car and make sure your hands are on the steering wheel at 10 and 2. And it's like, <laughs> why, why do you have to be trained on how to... <laughs> to to de-escalate and so and when you talk about 
these situations too, how disturbing they are where, you know, somebody sitting in their house or the $20 bill or, you know, Jacob Blake walking in there, there was fear that there was a knife. Right. And then it's like that, that's a, and you, I would think a police officer would, would know how to, to use non-lethal force or even no force to, but I, yeah, it's, it, and I apologize because it's just it's something I have a hard time wrapping my head around is this this inequity back and forth about who who is really supposed to be the expert about these situations. Right. I can remember when I was at the register, I did a ride along with the Johnson police officer and it was the most illuminating thing. Right. I'm out there riding with him and he's pulling people over. And I remember he pulled over this white man um, who was speeding. And that man, he was the most disrespectful, you know, angry. He was yelling. He was talking about how he was trying to get to airport. How dare he be pulled over? And I was sitting there like, oh, my God, people actually this was going back to like maybe 2001, 2002. And I was like, people actually talk to officers like that? Like, I fully, you know, expected something to pop off, but he did that. The officer remained calm and he went on. And I can tell you right now, as a black person, I just can't imagine, I can't imagine being able to do that. I can't imagine the outcome, what the outcome would have been had somebody done that. Like, I fully expect that they would have been snatched out of that car and, you know, at least at the very least arrested. But, you know, he, that officer that I rode with, he encountered person after person that, treated him with no respect, you know, or very limited respect. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's amazing, you know, what, what you see happen in some of these cases. And like, I mean, a lot of people talk about how, you know, like Jill and Ruth who, you know, killed the parishioners, you know, how easily he was able to be, you know, taken into custody. And you compare those to, to these, some of these little minor things that happen um, with black people and they're not, yeah, and if I, the same, and so right. If I'm remembering the Dylan Roof story too, is I think they even got him some Burger King. Yeah, I'm not sure that the burger thing. I think Snopes did some something on that, uh, discounting the Burger King part okay. of it. But still, it's like there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of instances where you see people taken in. You see these videos and, you know, of right. course, now everything's on video. And But the video, and, and when it comes to black people, it doesn't seem like it ever, it's not helping us. I mean, people can still look at the video and see very different things. You know, you think looking at George Floyd, you know, on the ground there, calling out for his mother, you know, saying he can't breathe. Um, and you've got the bystanders, these very courageous, beautiful bystanders, Darnella Frazier, 17 years old, filming. And, you know, the police just still continue mm-hmm. and, you know, don't let up. And you people still can look at that video and be like, well, but George Floyd was a criminal. But George Floyd, if you read about his life, and this is some of the things that I've tried to do with Black Iowa News, if you read about his life, you know, he was an athlete. He went to college. He might have dealt with substance abuse in his life, but like many people who dealt with substance abuse, he was striving to be a better person. He was striving to overcome it. He helped nonprofits. You know, people want to paint 
people in society want to, want to paint um, victims of police brutality as criminals where I'm always saying, okay, but what about that officer? Well, let's, yeah. let's talk more. Instead of victimizing the victim, let's talk more about the other options that this officer had. Um, you know, let's talk about why Derek Chauvin resisted uh, uh, one of his colleagues saying, hey, let's do this differently. Let's talk about why he refused, you know, to listen to any of the bystanders and why he thought he was just going to get back in his police cruiser at the end of the day and go on and continue to be an officer. Let's talk about why he has a lot of support um, by people to for his actions that day. Like, I don't know, the lens that we view things, it really needs to be cleared up and we all need to, you know, remember at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're human beings and even flawed human beings don't deserve to die on the pavement. And it's not the job of the police to be judge, jury, and executioner, you know, out on the, the street corner. Absolutely. That, right. And that was one of the, especially like thinking about what happened with, like you said, if, if the, the prompting of this was a questionable $20 bill um, and, and then almost the, the victim blaming to justify these things rather than even let, let's assume uh, that it was counterfeit. And the 20, like, the job of the police officer then is to right intervene, but not be the law and the punishment, right? It, the, the, if you break the law, right, then, then there, that's what court systems are for, right? But when they're dispensing justice uh, and it's, that's, that's one of the other big things that I guess I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around is almost that separation between uh, law enforcement and kind of then the judicial system is the, you know, nothing. And th- those are all really big, complicated systems too right now right i mean uh, but uh just that it's surprising for me is also i feel like a large number of people that will get into the victim blaming game are also people that are concerned about government overreach but (laughs) right it's just it's so disturbing and I, i really appreciate you bringing these stories to light one of the one of the questions about you related to you and your craft and your life uh that i'd love to ask guests uh, is talking about good advice that maybe you received or stealing from Austin Cleon, uh, his book, Steal Like an Artist. He says, uh, when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. But uh, from your perspective, what's been some good advice you've received in your life? And what advice might you have for others that are, you know, might go down a journalism path, might be an entrepreneur like you, might be, uh, you know, an advocate for social justice? Kind of curious about good advice you might have. Yes, definitely. Um, So in terms of advice, I think in my life from my parents, from my community, from certain mentors, and that is that, you know, it's okay to be your your authentic self and your voice does matter and what you do has merit and, you know, to always keep fighting and keep pushing. That was really a theme that my mother had. um, And I grew up with this uh, theme that she always talked about you know, you keep pushing. And if you want to improve something about yourself personally, you know, you have that power and you can do that. And it doesn't matter if you're 87 years old and you decide you want to be a painter, you know, you go paint. 
And so I've kind of grown up with that, um, always with that feeling that my voice is valuable, my perspective is valuable. And so I stand on my ground. I stand my ground um, a lot of times, even in the society and even in working in places that um, maybe didn't always, you know, maybe wanted to, you know, pigeonhole me as a, you know, angry black woman or what, whatever stereotypes are out there. Um, I was always told my voice is valuable. And so part of my advice to other people is your voice is valuable. We need you. Uh, we need you to start, you know, your own uh, creative enterprises. And that is one thing that I will say um, in terms of giving advice to other people. And that is when I was young, my advice um, that I received from my parents and my community on the east side of Des Moines was you got a degree, you know, get a good job with benefits. That was the advice, right? But, and I got to this later in life, but I really wish I had been pushed earlier to be an owner, to be a publisher, to be an entrepreneur, to, you know, be the CEO of your own company. And so since George Floyd died, I've noticed on social media here that there are a lot of younger people who have started these social media groups to um, buy black and to support black businesses. And then also to support each other's side hustles and small businesses. And I think that that is so, um, it's awesome, it's so valuable. And I like to see this um, environment of community building. And so I really you know, encourage people, you know, take that idea that you have no matter what it is, um, you know, Black Iowa News really started with just me and the Chromebook, right? And it didn't take a it didn't take a lot of money to start. Even though I've always paid my artists, and I very much believe in paying artists and paying editors and things like that. But there's this um, Arthur Ashe quote, and you read it in a lot of uh, like small business books and you know entrepreneurial articles. And it said, "Start where you are." use what you have and do what you can. And that is really like my advice to other people, you know, start where you are, you, you know, in some instances, yes, you might need an MBA. In some instances, you know, you might need, you know, a degree, but more often than not, you know, there's lots of entrepreneurs we can look to that don't, don't have those things. And so just start with whatever you have. And, you know, I really feel like the universe, when you're doing what you should be doing, when you're using your talents and your gifts in, you know, for other people, on behalf of other people, I really feel like the universe does open up to you and, and support comes from all kinds of places that you would never expect. It's happened to me with Black Iowa News in terms of people, um, Black, Iowans, um, Black people that don't even live here anymore, um, have reached out to me through my email and said, hey, we love what you're doing. Um, don't stop. You know, how can we support you? And, you know, I tell them, hey, share my stories on social media, subscribe, you know, to Black Iowa News. And, you know, people have also wanted to give me financial contributions. And so that's kind of my advice for other people. Just start your thing, start now and grow. And, you know, you learn by your mistakes. Right. Dana, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for sharing your voice and uh, your story with uh, the Iowa Idea podcast. It's been an absolute uh, honor to have you on here. Thank you so much for having so much Matt for having me on the Iowa Idea podcast. 
it's been my honor and I wish you continued success. Thank you very much. Have, have a fantastic day. Thank you. Take care. Yep, thank you. Bye-bye.